Second Peter chapter 3, and we'll start reading in verse 14. Peter says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, these things referring to a new heavens and new earth of the previous verse, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray once more. Father, we do come to you now and ask for new strength. We ask that you would cause us to mount up with wings like the eagle. And we pray that you would show us something here in this time that would encourage us, build us up, strengthen us, and cause us to love you more and want to follow you more closely in the days to come. We ask for your Holy Spirit's help now to understand, to see, to receive, and to not merely be a hearer of the word, but a doer. And we look to you for help to do that right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last Sunday we began to consider Peter's exhortation here in the first part of verse 18 where he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I mentioned last time that the book of Second Peter was written primarily to warn and to exhort believers to be on guard against the ungodly influence of various kinds of men. Men in and of themselves aren't the problem. Satan is the problem. Satan is the enemy. But Satan is able to use men in various ways to carry out attacks on God's people. And Peter knew this firsthand, didn't he? Because he himself was rebuked by the Lord in Matthew 16 for being a mouthpiece of Satan. So in his letter, Peter specifically warns us about three kinds of men. And we talked about this last week. False teachers mainly in chapter 2, mockers at the beginning of chapter 3, and then scripture distorters here at the end of chapter 3. And the danger here is that the influence of these kinds of men would tempt us to be carried away by their errors and cause us to fall from our own steadfastness. That's the terminology that Peter uses here. Verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing about these scripture distorters, knowing about these mockers, knowing about these false teachers, knowing this beforehand, what does he say? Be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the air of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. The ESV translation says, Take care that you are not carried away by the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. So don't fall from your own steadfastness. Don't lose your stability. So here you are walking with the Lord day by day, trying to follow him in the midst of what Paul calls a crooked and perverse generation. 
and you find yourself bombarded almost on a daily basis with mockings, false teachings, distortions of the Bible's message, and at times it can seem almost constant. And Peter is saying to us here, watch out. Be on your guard. Don't allow these things to sweep you away. Don't give any place to such things. Why? Because the tendency is to allow these mockings and these false teachings and these scripture distorters to unsettle us, to upset us, to cause our feet to to be moved off of the, the steadfastness of the gospel, to waver and to shift. And so he says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the air of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But Peter goes on, he gives us more than just a negative warning here. He doesn't stop with just saying, be on your guard, but he gives a positive exhortation in verse 18. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So in other words, not falling from our own steadfastness, not losing our stability, not shifting, not wavering, requires more than just being on guard. It requires growth, positive growth. And so last time then we considered four general observations about growth in the Christian life, four principles about growth in general as a Christian. The first one is that growth requires the presence of life. Growth requires the presence of life. There has to be life before there can be growth. Isn't that obvious? Something can't grow unless it is first alive. And according to the scriptures, everyone, beloved, every single person is born into this world in a state of spiritual death. Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. You see, the unbeliever, the lost person is not just spiritually sick. They're not just sick. If that were the case, there would still be hope for human intervention, you see. Because if you have a person who's sick, you can give them vaccines, you can give them medications, you can give them surgeries, whatever. But when someone is dead, the possibility for human intervention is over. There's no possibility for human intervention when you're dealing with a dead person. You can give a dead person all of the medicine in the whole world, and it's not going to make them even the tiniest bit more alive. The only hope at that point is a miracle. And a miracle is exactly what God does every time that he takes a spiritually dead person and makes them alive in Christ. Ephesians 2, 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. See the activity on God's part. He did it. He made us alive. You didn't make yourself alive. You were dead. He made you alive. And then Paul says, by grace you have been saved. We were dead. He made us alive. Now we can grow. But the point here is that there must be life before there can be growth. The second general observation from last time is that growth is possible in the Christian life. Peter exhorts us here to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's not telling us to do something that we really can't do. He's not saying, do this, but it's impossible. That's not what he's saying. He's calling us to grow because growth really is possible in the Christian life. I said last time that if you are a Christian here today, the person that you once were, that person that you were before you were converted, that person is gone. You're never going to be that person again. You never are going to be that person again. Gone, dead, buried, and raised up in its place as a new creation in Christ. If any man 
be in Christ. He's a new creation. Not part old, part new, but a totally new creation. Raised up to walk in newness of life. God has put his very life inside of you. His invincible, indestructible life is in you, causing you to grow. And it's incredible, isn't it? I just saw an example of this the other day. Walking along on the sidewalk, and here you see this little plant pushing up through concrete. Just pushing this con- these big slabs of concrete are being pushed out of the way by this little plant, probably a tree or something, but it's just this little sprout coming up through the concrete. And you see, beloved, that's what it's like with God's life inside of you. There's all kinds of obstacles in your way, but because it's God's life inside of you, it is indestructible life, and it will win in the end. He will be your God, and you will be his child, and he will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. That little sprout that seems so weak will bust up through that concrete and move it out of the way. He is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And because he is at work, we can work out our own salvation, which is just another way of saying that we can grow, we can change. We can actually become more like Christ. Proverbs 4, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. <laughs> it's brighter and brighter. The third point from last time is that growth is necessary. So growth is possible, but growth is also necessary. If we're going to withstand the onslaughts of false teachers, mockers, scripture, distorters, we must be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Defending alone is not enough. There needs to be positive growth. Not just standing guard you know, behind your wall of intellectual arguments or whatever, but positively growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. That will keep us from losing our stability. And this is amazing, beloved. As unbelievable as it sounds, even the Lord Jesus Christ himself needed to go through a process of growth in his earthly life. You ever thought about that? Listen to this. Luke chapter 2, verse 40. The child, talking about the Lord Jesus, the child continues... These are incredible words. The child. I mean, here he is. (laughs) The Lord of the universe. The child, I guess at this point he's more like this, but the child continued to grow and become strong. That's more physical growth. But listen, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. You see, he increased in wisdom. He actually got more wise the older he got. Process, you see, process of growth. Luke 2.52, Jesus kept increasing and in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God. He increased in favor with God. Isn't that amazing? He increased. It doesn't mean he was ever outside of God's favor. He wasn't ever sinful. God was never displeased with him in that sense, but he still grew. It's like more and more favor with God as he went on. And this is the most amazing of all to me. Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Although he was a son... He learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Jesus had to learn obedience. How is that possible? How can you learn obedience if you're never disobedient? Well, the thing is, it's just like training for a race or something. You you put these 
weights on your legs and you get more and more stronger the more that you run with these things. It's the same way in the life of the Lord Jesus. He never disobeyed, but he got stronger and stronger in his obedience as God put one more test in his way and he would overcome that and then another test would come and he would overcome that. He would learn what it meant to obey God more and more as God put him through these different situations in his life and ministry. So what I'm saying here is that the Bible teaches that the Son of God himself had to go through a process of growth during his earthly ministry. The book of Hebrews says he had to be made perfect. (laughs) That doesn't mean he wasn't perfect in one sense to begin with, but he had to be made perfect as a man, you see. Passing these tests, growing in wisdom, growing in favor with God. The Lord Jesus was not as spiritually strong at the beginning of his life as he was at the end. It's clear he wasn't. He underwent a process of growth, trusting God step by step, overcoming temptation, walking by faith day by day. Like it says about Abraham, he grew strong in faith. He grew in faith until he was strong enough in the end to triumph in the Garden of Gethsemane and ultimately to triumph on the cross. Jesus could not have conquered Gethsemane at the beginning of his life. He couldn't have. He had to grow strong enough to get to the point where he could withstand that cup and he could drink it down on the cross. But the thing to get here is that growth is necessary. And if that's true of the Son of God, beloved, how much more is it true of us that growth is necessary? And then fourthly, last time, growth is a process. Growth in the Christian life is progressive. It occurs in stages. The word itself, grow, implies a process of some sort. Something starts out small and gets larger. Something starts out weak and gets stronger. As Jesus said in Mark 4, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and he goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. There's steps, you see, to growth. It's a process. It occurs in stages. Concerning Christians, Isaiah 61 says they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Every Christian, as I said last time, is an oak of righteousness that God himself has planted. But you don't start out fully mature, fully grown, fully strong. You start out as this little tiny seed inside of an acorn. And God plants that in the ground, and it comes up as a little bitty shoot, and then it turns into a little sprout, and then it gets a little bit larger, and God's tending you and caring for you and watering you and pruning you, and it takes years, beloved, years, for that oak tree to grow fully. Eventually, though, after years of care by the Lord, you will stand forth as a fully grown oak of righteousness that can withstand these onslaughts of false teachers, mockers, scripture disorders. As I said last time, growth is a process, but the process is certain when God is the one who plants you. You get that? Growth is a process, but the process is certain when God is the one who does the planting and the watering and the caring and the pruning. Well, all of that was review then from last week, and what I'd like to do for us, what I'd like to do today is to consider what this, this next key word in uh, Peter's exhortation back in Second Peter 3.18, and that's the word grace. Again, Peter says this, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. And we'll focus on grace today, possibly get back to knowledge next week. I'm not sure yet, but today we'll be looking at grace. And we're going to structure our time today around three questions. One, what is grace? You've got to know what it is, right, before you can grow in it. What is grace? Secondly, why does Peter focus on grace in this exhortation? And then thirdly, how can we grow in it? How can we grow in grace? And so the first question then, what is grace? What is grace? Before you can grow in it, like I said, you have to know what it is. And I just want to, this is kind of a tangent, but beloved, it's important for us. There are words in the Bible that are important words, (laughs) important words, faith, grace, justify, regeneration, election, predestination. There are words that are really important words, propitiation, huge. We ought to know, we ought to have some idea of what these words mean, right? I mean, these words that are so important for the Christian life, we ought to have some concept of what these words mean, what they're describing, And grace, I mean, how you can't get much more important than grace, right? So what is it? How would you define grace? Well, it's typically defined as God's unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor. And that's that's not bad. The favor of God towards rebellious sinners who not only don't deserve favor, but have actually done everything in their power to earn the exact opposite of favor namely God's wrath. And yet, in the face of the wrath we deserve, God reaches out to us with this special favor. Totally unmerited, totally unearned special favor. That's, that's grace, God's unmerited favor. But I also really like a definition that I heard not too long ago from a writer. His name is Paul Zoll. And he defined grace like this. He called it God's one-way love. His one-way love. And here's how he expanded on that. This is a quote from Paul Zoll. He said, what is grace? Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. It is being loved when you are the opposite of lovable. (laughs) See, it's not just that you're kind of like neutral and God loves you anyway. It's you're totally unlovable. You're the opposite of lovable. And he loves you anyway. Grace is a love that has nothing to do with you, the beloved. It has everything and only to do with the lover. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do, you see, with you earning something. Tit for tat, quid pro quo. You pay so much, you get so much back. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. None of that with grace. It has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do with my intrinsic qualities or so-called gifts, whatever they may be. It reflects a decision on the part of the giver, the one who loves, in relation to the receiver, the one who is loved, that negates any qualification the receiver may personally hold. Grace is one-way love. And I really like that definition, one-way love. So what is grace? Well, you could say it's God's special, unmerited favor towards you, or you could say it's God's one-way love towards you. Either way, it truly is marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. It truly is amazing grace. Paul says, Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. It's glorious grace. 
If grace is not glorious to you, something is wrong with your Christian life. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So what is grace? That was the first question. God's unmerited favor. That's how a kind of a textbook definition, if you read systematic theologies or whatever, that's kind of a definition you'll hear there. Or one-way love. I really like that one as well. Second question this morning, why does Peter focus on grace in this exhortation? Of course, he also mentions knowledge here, which makes sense, right? You can't really grow in grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, without at the same time growing in knowledge of him, too. They really go together. But why, is, why the specific mention of grace? I mean, why Peter could have said all kinds of things, right? He could have said all kinds of other things that we need to grow in. Grow in zeal. Grow in holiness. Grow in mercy. I mean, there are all kinds of things he could have said. There will all be good things, right? So why grace? Why does he mention grace specifically here? And I think we'll see at least a part of the answer if we remember who wrote these words and why he wrote them. Remember that Peter's concern here in Second Peter is, is that believers would stand strong and not lose our stability and throw in the towel in the face of temptations and pressures, both internal and external, that we face while trying to walk with God in the midst of a fallen world. And Peter knew better than most that when those temptations and pressures bring a person to the point of collapse and even failure, the one thing that can bring stability and steadfastness back like nothing else is grace. Now, why, did I, why do I say that Peter knew this better than most? Well, see if these words sound familiar. Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I have to die with you, Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Fast forward a few hours. Then Peter began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told them, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. (laughs) Peter fell from his steadfastness. He lost his stability. Like he warns against right here in Second Peter 3. He lived through it. Well, now what? Enter grace. Enter one-way love. Simon, son of John, do you love me? See, and if you hear that question like it's some kind of rebuke, like Jesus is stabbing Peter and digging the knife in when he's asking those questions, you've got it totally backwards. He's, it's not like that. He's drawing out of Peter what's really down there in his heart because Peter is low. He denied the Lord. And Jesus is drawing, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Do you love me? You know that I love you. He's drawing out the reality that Peter really does love the Lord. Peter Peter himself needed to be reassured of the fact that, yes, he really did love the Lord Jesus. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Grace, even in the questioning. But then Jesus' replies to Peter pour forth even more grace. What does, Peter, or what does Jesus say in response to Peter? Tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep, follow me. 
And oh, by the way, preach on the day of Pentecost so that thousands of people are converted. And then become one of the pillars of the early church. And also write a couple of letters that will go into the New Testament as the word of God that will feed the people of God for generations, eons. Talking about Peter. Do you see? Peter knew firsthand that nothing can restore and maintain a person's steadfastness and stability in the life of a believer like having your feet firmly planted in abounding grace. And I think surely that's one of the reasons why he specifically emphasizes that here in his exhortation, because he himself had experienced that grace in a way that few people have. So why grace? Peter's personal experience surely was part of that. And then thirdly today... How do we grow in this grace? Peter doesn't just say that we're to know what grace is, like we can just give a definition of it and that's good enough. He says we're supposed to grow in it. How do we do that? How can we grow in God's special favor toward us? How can we grow in his one-way love? And we could give a lot of answers to that, honestly, but I want to emphasize just one today, and that's by the renewing of our minds. Uh, And let's turn to Romans 12, a well-known passage, but I think it's helpful in this regard. Romans 12. Verse 1. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. The word there is metamorphosized. It's the same word that's used of the Lord Jesus in his transfiguration. He was transfigured before them. He was metamorphosized before them. It's the same word. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And to see the connection here, we need to remind ourselves of the larger context because here in Romans, Paul had just spent the first 11 chapters of this letter unfolding God's grace to these Romans. And so he, he paints this incredible picture in Romans 1 through 11 of man's sin and condemnation, God's provision for that sin and condemnation in the person of Jesus Christ, how guilty sinners can actually stand justified before God by faith alone, in Christ alone, and how once justified we have peace with God and a standing in grace and the certainty of, of a secure future because we've been apprehended by a love that nothing can separate us from, Romans 8. And he just goes on and on in 1 through 11. I mean, it's like you could say that Paul in Romans 1 through 11 paints a Rembrandt of grace. Just this incredible painting of grace. And then he gets to chapter 12 and he says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renewing of your mind how? Well, by doing what? By renewing your mind with this grace that I just spent the first 11 chapters painting a picture of for you. Meditate on it, chew on it, drink it down, feel it, experience it, be transformed by it. The point here is that we grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ when our minds are renewed and transformed by the displays of that grace 
found on the pages of Scripture. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And think of how much of the Bible is taken up with simply displaying like a painting to us the grace of God. You see, the Bible is not primarily a rule book or a book, you know, telling you how you ought to live your life. In fact, there are a lot of people who just flat out fail in the Bible. It's not, it's not a book. It's not like that. It's not a rule book. It's not a book about giving you good examples to follow, although it does do that. But the Bible is primarily a book about how the God of creation enters into his creation, fallen and sinful and wicked as it is, enters into that creation with love and grace and mercy towards people that not only don't deserve it, but have done everything in their power possible to do the exact opposite of deserving it. Just grace. That's the message of the Bible. Over and over again, how the God of creation breaks into the lives of fallen, sinful human beings with mercy, compassion, and love. Think of how much of the Gospels are simply the grace of God on display in the person of Jesus Christ. Teaching, healing, feeding, interacting with society's outcasts, bearing with blundering and faithless disciples, dying on the cross for sinners. And you get on into the letters of the New Testament. Think of Romans 1 through 11, Ephesians 1 through 3. Just on and on. Grace everywhere. Just displays of grace. Because it's through these displays of grace that our minds are renewed and that we in turn grow in our apprehension and our experience of that grace. And so what I'd like to do then with the rest of our time today is simply look together with you at one of these displays of grace. And I like it because it particularly mentions the grace of Jesus, which Peter specifically exhorts us to grow in, right? He says, grow in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grow in the grace of Jesus. And so what I want to do then is spend the rest of the time looking at this with you. And this is in 2 Corinthians 8. Just a wonderful verse. I think Ryan spoke on this a couple of years ago. I think maybe it was. 2 Corinthians 8. In verse 9. Paul's writing to the Corinthians here and he says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here Paul gives us just a super concentrated ray of grace. It just explodes off the page here. If you really stop and think about it, it's just incredible how Paul is able to concentrate basically the entire gospel message in one verse. It's just exploding with grace. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that. And then he walks through the grace of Jesus on display in the gospel. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's just it's wonderful. And what I want to do is just break it down a little bit today as we wrap up. First of all, Paul says, though he was rich, though the Lord Jesus Christ was rich. Before being born into this fallen world, Paul says that Jesus was rich. You ever thought about that? I don't usually think of Jesus in that way, being rich, right? 
How was he rich? Well, he was rich in at least three ways. First of all, he was rich in ownership. The entire earth was his and the fullness thereof. All things were created through him and for him. He is the heir of all things, Hebrews 1, the inheritor of all things. It all belongs to him. He was rich in ownership. He could look down at the entire world, not to mention the entire universe, and he could rightly say, mine, mine, all of it. This past year in my world history class, we talked about Alexander the Great, who was the king of Macedonia in 336 B.C., He became king of Macedonia at the age of 20. By the age of 30, he had conquered most of the known world at that time, an incredible military general. One of the cities that he conquered early in his career was the Persian capital of Persepolis. And part of the spoils of that conquering of Persepolis was a not insignificant stockpile of gold. Not $60,000 worth of gold, not $60 million worth of gold, $60 billion worth of gold Alexander the Great took from Persepolis. He instantly became the richest person in the entire world at that time. But you stop and it's like, wait a second, though. Who really owned that gold? Who really owned that gold? It wasn't Alexander. It was Jesus' gold. He owned that gold. Not only that, who owned all of the rest of the gold and all of the rest of the entire world at that time? Because there's a lot more gold than just that in Persepolis. Who owned all the rest of that, too? Jesus did. Not only that, who owned all of the gold under the ground that hadn't even been discovered yet? Jesus, you see. Mine. It's mine. <laughs> he was rich in ownership. Secondly, how was he rich? He was rich in relationship. The Son of God enjoyed a perfect, unending, uninterrupted, undiminished love relationship with his Father and the Holy Spirit prior to his incarnation. He was rich in relationship. And then thirdly, he was rich in worship. He didn't just enjoy a perfect relationship with his Father and the Holy Spirit. He enjoyed the unending worship and praise of all of heaven's angels, cherubim, seraphim, you name it, all of them, a loud, unending chorus of praise flowing from the lips of these angelic beings directed to the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He was rich. I like the way the hymn says it. One day when heaven was filled with his praises... One day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin. Heaven was filled, you see, with his praises right on that very day when he left (laughs) to come down. He was rich in worship, rich in relationship, rich in ownership. Yet, Paul says, though he was rich, he became poor. Though he was rich, he became poor. What did it mean for him to become poor? I don't think we could give a better description of it than Paul himself does in Philippians 2. Let's turn to that quickly here. Philippians 2. Though he was rich, he became poor. How poor did he become? Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to, 
But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you see this starting off, Paul says, he starts off in the form of God. He was equal with God, Paul says, but he didn't hold on to that equality. He could have. He chose not to. He gave it up. He took the form of a bondservant. But he didn't just become a man, you see. That's the incredible thing. He, took, he, he became a lowly man, <laughs> born into a... Um, a place that was, you know, it was like a byword among the nations. Can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, it's like, anything good come from this place? People mocked him just because of where he was born. So he humbles himself all throughout his life, humbling himself until the ultimate act of humbling, the death on the cross. He became poor. The one who was rich in ownership was actually able to say, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's how poor he became. The one who was rich in relationship, the one who enjoyed a perfect, unending love relationship with his Father for all eternity, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who was rich in worship dies like a common criminal, not surrounded by the praises of heaven, but with the scorn and mockings of passerbys ringing in his ears. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. How poor did he become? You can't, God only knows how poor he became. Though he was rich, he became poor. It's easy to say those words, but no one knows what that was like. But the question is why? Why make this trip infinitely downward? And it was an infinite step of humility and condescension when Jesus came from heaven down to earth. It was an infinitely downward step. <laughs> why? And Paul's, Paul's answer is, for your sake. For your sake. Again, Second Corinthians 8 Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Beloved, what brought the Son of God down from heaven? What could possibly move him to leave those riches in heaven? Riches of ownership. Riches of relationship, riches of worship. What could motivate him? What could move him to leave those riches and to be born into this wasteland of a world? You. Paul says it was you. That's what he says. It's not me saying that. Paul says that. For your sake, for you, he did that. For you, he took that step. And see, our tendency is to think, well, man, then we must really be something if he would do that for us. We must really be something. Right? Isn't that what we usually think? If somebody does something great for you, you know, you think, well, I must really be something then to earn that. 
Yeah, you were something all right. This Bible says that you were his enemy. Polluted, defiled, morally worse than dirt. Because at least dirt isn't sinful. Morally speaking, worse than dirt. Hateful, hating one another, hating God, condemned under his wrath. That's what you were. You see the point here? The point is is that there was nothing in you that drew him down. Nothing. Nothing. Zero. You see, and that's so helpful, beloved, because that means then that if there's nothing in me that draws him down, there's nothing in me that merits his grace, then that means I can't lose that grace either. Because it's not about, it wasn't about me at the beginning, not about me now. It's always been about him. One way love one way love you see that's grace that's unmerited special favor that's one way love not only did you not meet the requirements you did the exact opposite of the requirements yet he came you see that's the point yet he came he didn't wait for you to clean up your act because you never would have cleaned up your act you couldn't clean up your act just like Sean was saying about these, these men there in jail. It's like when you, when you really realize, when you stop and think about it, it's like I can't stop sinning. I can't clean up my act. You can't do it. It's a pretty amazing step when someone gets to that point. Romans 5, while we were still helpless. You hear that word? I love that word. Helpless. I mean, it's one thing for a guy to be there, and he can still kind of move his hand a little bit. I mean, he can do something, right? But if a person is literally helpless, then there's nothing, nothing that they can do. They are helpless, unable to help themselves, totally. And Paul says, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the righteous? No, he died for the ungodly, he says. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again, the hymn says, One day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth. Right on the very day when sin was as black as can be, that's when he came. That's one way love. That's grace. He didn't wait for us to initiate because we never would have initiated. He has to initiate. He starts. He comes down. He makes the choice. He takes the first step. We sang this morning, Long before I ever knew him, my Lord first knew me. Before I ever sought him, my Lord first sought me. When I was in darkness... His sworn enemy, you see, died for his enemies. Not morally neutral people, but people who were actually opposed to him. That's who he came to save. When I was in darkness, his sworn enemy, he purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. Not that I first did choose him, for that could not be. How could you, how could you choose him? You were dead. You hated him. Still this heart would refuse him had he left it to me. I'd still fight that battle that no man can win. I'd still bar the heart's door that letteth him in.
Well, again, Paul says, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. And then Paul ends with his purpose in becoming poor. He says, So that you through his poverty might become rich. So that you through his poverty might become rich. The Bible says you're rich. Don't you love that? You are. If you're a Christian here today, you are rich. He was rich. He becomes poor so that we can become rich. It's like the gospel in three statements. Grace, grace. Well, how rich are we? Well, think of this. If all Jesus did was lessen God's wrath towards us just a tiny bit, if that's all he accomplished is just lessening God's wrath towards you just a little bit, you would still have cause to praise him for all eternity. If that's all he did. If all he did was make hell just a tiny bit more tolerable for you, you would still have cause to praise him for all eternity. How rich are you? He chose you before the foundation of the world, set his love on you, died to redeem you, paid for all of your sins, adopted you into his family, and he will return to take you back to his home where he will spend all of eternity, beloved, all of eternity, showering love and joy and blessing on your infinitely unworthy head. That's how rich you are. Forget hell just being more tolerable for you. Here is love vast as the ocean. I love that line from the song. Here is love vast as the ocean. Here is grace, we could say, like a flood. And so again, what's the point here? The point is is that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. By just seeing these pictures of grace, right? I mean, I hope you're experiencing some of that right now. That's, that's the point. I don't just want to tell you you need to be transformed by grace. I want you to experience that today and realize that you can go from here and take your Bible and you can go home and you can do the exact same thing that we just spent the last 15, 20 minutes doing. You yourself can behold these paintings, these pictures of grace and be transformed by them. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Put your roots down deep into this grace because nothing will sustain joy in your life, beloved. Nothing will sustain joy like being anchored in grace. Nothing. Nothing will keep you as stable as planting your feet firmly on the unshakable foundation of the grace of God found in Christ. Which brings us back right to where we started, right? Second Peter Three, I'll just read this one more time for you. Second Peter three, seventeen, the exhortation here to us today. Peter says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing you're going to face opposition, knowing you're going to be assaulted by mockers and false teachers and scripture distorters or whatever. Knowing that beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the air of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge 
of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We grow in His grace when our minds are renewed and transformed by the displays of that grace found on the pages of Scripture. And we've just looked at one today. There are hundreds, maybe thousands. I mean, once you start thinking about it, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels, Epistles, it doesn't matter, you start seeing these glimpses of grace everywhere. Don't rush over those. Stop, gaze, look, meditate. Pick it apart. Word by word, phrase by phrase, chew on it, drink it down, be transformed by it. I want to end with this quote that I just read recently. I thought it was fitting here from Ian Hamilton. He said, I fear that if you're anything like me, that grace is such a commonplace in the evangelical Christian's vocabulary that the thought of it rarely, if ever, moves and thrills you far less overwhelms you. Isn't that true? I mean, you just get used to it, you know? It just becomes another word, grace. Who cares? It is a biblical truism that we are saved by grace, that salvation in all its parts is from Him and through Him and to Him, to Him be the glory forever. We know that grace truly is amazing. We understand that grace is undeserved, saving kindness to judgment-deserving sinners. We know this. We confess this. We sing this. Some of us preach this. Ouch. But when were we last humbled and overwhelmed by the heart-stopping wonder of grace? And that's the question I want to leave you with, because that's a, that's a heart-searching question. When was the last time that you were... Humbled, overwhelmed by the heart-stopping wonder of grace. Well, let's pray. Father, we do confess that more often than not, we are not humbled and we're not overwhelmed as we ought to be by grace. And we just pray, Father, would you be pleased to send your Holy Spirit to us even now, Lord, to open our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and to specifically to see the glory of his grace, the wonder of his grace, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. And Father, I pray that you would plant our feet firmly in that soil, that you would cause our roots to go down deep in the grace of God in Christ. Totally unearned, unmerited favor, one-way love coming down from heaven to sinners. Father, we thank you for it today. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's be dismissed.